before we read and discuss God's word together, I'd like I'd like to pray. Father, I just thank you for the privilege of worship, especially against the backdrop of our unworthiness and our sin, and the fact that we not only don't deserve to be here as worshipers, we deserve the opposite. And yet you've called us to yourself and shown us mercy upon mercy, even after that initial forgiveness is granted. You've made a full provision for our salvation, perfect provision that washes us, that cleanses us, that reaches into the depth of our soul and renews us and causes our heart to beat after you. We wish we didn't sin, but we're so grateful that you have made a provision for that. And we just cast ourselves before you for an understanding of your word and to rest fully in your faithfulness and in your goodness to us and in your love for us. Thank you for putting a, a deep and eternal love in our hearts for each other. I can't imagine my life without this church and this group of people. And so I just am grateful for it. And I'm just begging you to overcome my weaknesses and my flaws and frailties for the sake of the clarity of your word and the face of your son. Amen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to talk about the faithfulness of God, maybe coming at it from a little bit different of an angle. If you have a copy of God's word in your hand, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. It ought to be a passage that you're somewhat familiar with, with, and I'm going to read just a little bit of it. Simon Peter, a bond servant, that's doulos, a slave, and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. I just want to start just by telling you a quick little story. When I was a very young Christian, my wife and I attended a small Bible conference over in Brevard. I probably had not known the Lord a year and a half or so at that time. It was the typical Christian conference populated by all of the usual suspects. Some of you may actually recall what a culotte looks like. And if you don't, you are blessed for that. <laughs> Honestly, I don't remember much about the conference except the town it was in and one of the teachers that we heard. This teacher was very mild and seemed somewhat dispassionate. Not emotional at all. Not flashy. It was a workshop session, not one of the main events. At the beginning of the class, a passage from the New Testament was announced and read from the English Bible, much like we did just now. Each word from that passage was then briefly but carefully defined from the original language. Those words, now better understood, were then reconnected to their sentences. As the teacher worked us through this process, each thought of the author was clarified and the unmistakable idea of the message merged. Then with the main point of the passage made clear, a simple and now obvious application of obedience was suggested. 
this was done so that, so that those of us who were there might please God more in our everyday lives. Sounds pretty simple, right? With the lesson simply presented and the work of practical ministry done, the teacher closed in prayer and quietly sat down. Later, I thought of Jonathan Edwards. After this teacher sat down, the rest of us were left to deal with our shattered hearts and our desperate need to humble ourselves before God for forgiveness and grace. It was overwhelming. Up until that time, except perhaps for the occasion of my conversion, I had never worshipped Christ so urgently. Nothing like that had ever happened in my experience. My heart reached for the Lord in a new and fresh way. I believe and have come to know for sure that this experience of true worship occurred simply because the truth was made plain to us from Scripture. The Bible was exposited for us. It was more exposed to us than it had been when we entered that little classroom in Brevard. The truth of the passage we studied that day was not something I was completely unfamiliar with. It was just that when we left, I was more familiar with it, and it was more meaningful and impactful in my heart. I understood it better. I saw it with new eyes, almost as if I didn't know it at all. The Holy Spirit of God bore witness that day to the truth by illuminating the person of Christ to my mind's eye from that passage. Speaking for myself, I had never seen him so glorious in all my ever-loving life. Authentic worship leapt from my soul as it never had before. Never needs to be any more complicated than that. Very, very straightforward. And it is astounding how easily people who should know better move away from that simple exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy. Timothy, preach the word. <laughs> Explain the Bible. Let me demonstrate this process for you. I cannot even, after all of these years, do it with the skill of that teacher, but this actually gives way to the point I'm trying to make. It's not the teacher. <laughs> the teacher is almost an afterthought. There's so many proverbs that talk about the faithfulness of the messenger. His job is just, just get the information, hold it tightly and accurately in your mind. When you get to your destination, deliver the message. That's it. That should carry over not into only the preacher's life, into the preacher's life, but into all of our lives. We don't have to make the gospel fancy. We don't have to make it more than it is. We don't have to dress it up. As my pastor says all the time, it's like a lion. All you got to do is just open the cage and get out of the way. It, it knows what to do by itself. It is the exposure of the word by a deliberate act of the Holy Spirit that makes true worship possible. Nothing could be more simple, but nothing in this world is more profound. If you're a worshiper of Christ, then this message is for you. Remember our passage I'm only going to discuss a few words in one of those verses, and that's 2 Peter 1, 3a. In the NASB, it reads like this. Now, just listen. All you're doing is listening and thinking about what is being said. It says this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Now, one of the things I didn't mention that the teacher I heard that day did was beginning by connecting the passage they were going to teach to its context. 
Here's our context for 2 Peter 1, 3. The believing Jews, and believe it or not, I could stop right there and preach a sermon because I've heard numerous passages from 1 and 2 Peter talk without ever mentioning that reality, which adds a very rich contextual value to what he says. The believing Jews whom Peter writes are being attacked by false doctrine. They are being tempted at that moment to believe clearly and cleverly devised tales. That's how he puts it, cleverly devised tales. These false teachers put some thought into how to deceive their listeners. They taught warped and wacky interpretations of Scripture. You can see these truths in verse 16, verse 20, and chapter 2, verse 10. And if any of you want a copy of my notes, I'll be happy to give them to you because there'll be a lot more in my notes than I'll be able to give you tonight. These people talked Christ-denying, self-indulgent, and damnable things. Self-indulgent. That, that sounds modern, doesn't it? I mean, it, all the message now is about giving you what you want, and, and that's how they attract you to their version of Christianity. God is there to give you what you want. Who would not, in the natural order of things, respond to that? That's going to draw a crowd, especially if you can produce some sort of evidentiary experience that quantifies that. It's, It's overwhelmingly effective. It was then, and it is now. Peter seeks to turn them back to the only thing that can protect them. A simple and sober understanding of obedience to the scriptures. He mentioned, listen to this, in this little three-chapter letter, it's a short letter. You can read the whole letter in less than five minutes. In this short letter, he mentions that principle of the importance and exclusivity of scripture in chapter 1, verse 3, 4, 5, 8, 12, 19, 20, 21. Then he describes the teaching of the false teachers in chapter 2, and then in Chapter 3, he comes back to it again in verse 1, 2, 13, 15, 16, 17, and 18. The scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures. He keeps, that's the pounded truth of his message. Yes, there's a threat. Yes, it is dangerous. Dangerous to you. But here's the simple antidote for that danger, that infection. Here's how he puts it in. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now listen, just listen, just listen. I just want to demonstrate to you that for Peter, this is his solution to the worst problems that they have. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up by sincerity, by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. What is that? Scripture. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What is that? Scripture. That's it's he just is it's redundant. It's he's just and he's and he says it. I don't get tired of telling you this because we're sheep. We wander. When we wander, this is where we need to go back to. That's the context of the letter. To Peter, the safety of these Jewish believers rested upon their willingness to take refuge and guidance from the Scriptures alone, and to simply trust God that this simple provision was all they needed. I wish that was true of me all the time. I wish I could pull that thought down into my mind in every moment of temptation and challenge and laziness and apathy and influenced by the spirit of the world. All I need is you, Lord, and you're right here. You're right here. Here's what this little clause says, 2 Peter 1, 3a. God's word is perfectly sufficient for the believer to live in a way that is pleasing to God in each and every circumstance of life. No exceptions. Do we believe this? You believe this if you practice what this verse teaches. That's how you know you believe it. You believe it when you practice it. If you say you believe it and don't practice it, James would say you don't believe it. 
Luke 18 records these similar words of Jesus. Listen to this now. Listen carefully. Pay attention to what you hear. Listen. Hello. <laughs> Pay attention to what you hear. That was ironic, an ironic moment of distraction. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, listen, this is just spine tingling. For those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. None of us are immune to that principle. We are not immune to that principle that if we intentionally ignore the word of God, the understanding that we have, the light that we have dims. And we're not, because we're still in the flesh, we're not perfect. We're affected by that. And here's the worst thing. Most of the time, when we move away from the Lord by divorcing ourselves from the word of God in prayer, when we do that, whether a circumstance knocks us off of our kilter or or we get lazy, or we get into sin, or whatever the case may be, and our understanding starts becoming foggy, we don't know that that's happening. We are, we're looking out from our perspective. Everything's clear. We still understand everything we understand. The Bible says you don't. The Bible says when you move intentionally away from God and you ignore what he says, that what you have is being removed from you. It is It regresses. You're moving forward or backwards. You can't stand still. <clears throat> the clause in 2 Peter 1, 3 contains 21 words in the NAS translation I read for you. Quickly... I'm going to define these words for you from the original Greek text, just like my teacher did that day. Actually, I can cut it way short because it's 21 words in the English, but it's only 18 in the Greek. So take heart. I'm already wasting time. The little clause begins with the Greek phrase has. This little word reaches back to what has been said, gathers itself, and reaches forward to let the reader know what is about to be said. It's a very simple idea. But it's important because what he has just said in verses 1 and 2 is that this exhortation is for those who have received a like faith as ours. It's for those who have received salvation. It is for those who are genuinely born again of the Spirit of God. They had received the righteousness of God in Christ. Therefore, what he is about to tell them is not only relevant to them, but essential for them. Because this happened, now this can, I can simplify it a little bit. I'm sorry I'm meandering there. Because that happened, now this can happen. Because this provision was, was made in the same way, now this provision is going to be made for you. And they're similar, but they're slightly different in their nuance. You were saved by the word of God. Now you're going to be sanctified. The next Greek word is panta. Some of you out there probably know what it means. It means everything. But it doesn't mean everything. He says everything. Therefore, seeing that, we have this great salvation given to us in Christ, ponta, everything, and then he uses the verb given, everything given, everything does not mean everything, and that's usually true in the Bible. Everything is always quantified by its context. God doesn't give us everything. He doesn't tempt us to be up above, above which we're able. He doesn't give us bad things. He gives us good things. Here, this little word, ponta, is quantified by two nouns, life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness, in the same way our salvation was given to us, this is going to be given to us for life and godliness. So everything, yes, but everything, no. Not everything in terms of everything that is. Everything in regard to life and godliness. Again, the next word is a pronoun to us, just ensuring that we know this provision, like salvation, doesn't belong to everybody. The only people who get what's coming up in this verse are people who have received a like faith like Peter and his companions. 
then there's a definite article, and this definite article attaches to the word theas, and this means divine essence, the nature of God. He's given to us all things. God has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Theas, the nature or essence of God. It is the the character of God, the character of God. His goodness, in the same way salvation was given, has given to us, only us, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Godliness is the character defining, I messed that up a little bit. His divine essence has given to us. So that is letting you know where it's coming from, the divine essence. He has given to us what? Dunamas, power, might, strength, energy, powerful deeds. All that God's power is, in the same way that it is wrought in your salvation, comes into this provision for your daily life. Everything that God, here's, let me, I'm sorry about that. Everything that God is comes to you in this provision. It is not only backed backed authentically by him, he is in it. His essence is in it. His divine power, his power attached to his divine might has given us all things that's pertaining to life and godliness, pertaining to his pros, it means a near sphere. It denotes, it denotes motion of moving toward something. In other words, if you want to move toward everything that God gives you for life and godliness, you need to listen up for what is going to be said. And of course that excludes any other, any other means. Of course we'd say, well, why... Why would we pursue any other means? That's a great question, but the Bible goes the extra mile to tell you not to do that. That if you seek satisfaction, if you seek pleasure, if you seek contentment, if you seek purpose outside of this provision, you're going to be frustrated. Step beyond frustration, you're going to get into sin. Step beyond sin, you're going to displease God. This is the way And this is the power that is behind this. In the same way you were given salvation, this provision comes to you from God in all of his powerful essence and moves you toward a sufficient provision for life, that's zoan, and also godliness, eusebian. Godliness, that's the word. I got those two words confused. Godliness is to be like God in character, eusebian. If you want to be Like God in character, you have to appropriate this provision. And I mentioned to you already the Greek verb there, to be giving, but it's important. And this is where it comes in the Greek word orders. It's one of the most frustrating things about Greek. You can't import your English word order on a Greek sentence because they didn't talk or speak or write in the same manner in which we put words together to communicate. This word, this verb, comes this far into the clause. I I guess we're probably 12 12 or 13 words in, and it is the Greek, normal Greek word for giving, but it is a verb, and it is, listen to this, in the perfect middle participle form with an imperative sense. No matter what commentary you pull, if it is a Greek-oriented commentary or a technical-oriented commentary, the guy will always tell you this is a participle with an imperative sense. Some of you probably run across that. This is a participle with an imperative sense. What this means in God's giving us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, in the middle voice, this means that God caused himself to impart this provision to you. God, it's a middle voice. God caused himself to impart this provision to you. Here's what the imperative sense means. It means that he binds himself to that. 
He, he commits. It's just exactly like when Abraham was put to sleep by God and God laid the animals out. Abraham was gone. He was completely oblivious. And God made a covenant. He made an oath with himself. He covenanted with himself to give each and every person of like faith the provision to be able to please him in life and godliness through the provision that he's going to mention in this verse. He caused himself to do it, and he bound himself to it by oath. There's no prejudice here. It's not you get it, you don't, you get more, you get less. This is a common grace in the believing heart provisionally. And then the finishing touches on the verse itself, really interesting. Most translations, like the one I read for you from the NASB, will say things or translate this clause like this through the true knowledge of him seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Actually, that's taking a little bit of liberty with the Greek text because the text simply says through the knowledge. That's all that's in the Greek. God has chosen in the same way he gave you salvation with all of his might and power behind it, communicating to you the provision of being able to live a life that is pleasing to him on every day and in every way, he brings that provision to you through one way, through one means, knowledge. Right? Now, remember, you can pull in your understanding of Scripture. There's knowledge, just like everything. There's everything, and then there's everything. Right? There's knowledge, there's man's wisdom, and then there's knowledge. Everything that we need to please God and to live a life of godliness before him, and our sufficiency of knowing confidently that we don't face anything that that provision does not cover comes through one means. Knowledge. Knowledge. Through the knowledge. Dia tes epigenosis. Dia tes epigenosis. Through the knowledge. Here's how the sentence is written. I know that may, especially that little middle part where I got Eusebion and Theon confused. Forgive me for that, but hear the, hear the Greek word order. Here's just taking each Greek word, giving it its most simple English companion, and leaving the Greek word order intact. Here's how it reads. Accordingly, everything us, the divine power, his, that pertaining to life and godliness, to be causing himself to give through knowledge, through the knowledge. That's the Greek word order. Let me translate that for you kind of with a, like the ASB. Y'all know what the ASB is, the old predecessor of the NASB, and it's a really great translation, hard to read because it's so concrete. It doesn't take much liberty with moving around word order. It's pretty you got to really pay attention when you read it. But here's a, here's a hard translation of this. I, I did this. It's not ASD. Accordingly, his divine power gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge. Here's a soft translation taking our modern understanding of English and sort of smoothing it out so that it's more comprehensible to us, understanding the precise meaning of each word in the clause. In accordance with our salvation... His divine power gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness through knowledge. There's, you, no matter, if this is, what I'm saying to you is not a lot of subjectivity, opinion about what this verse says. No matter how you slice it and dice it and define it, if you're honest and authentic with the definitions of the word, it comes out the same in the wash and it says, God has given every believer everything that they need to face every situation in a way that pleases him through knowledge. Let me paraphrase the verse for you. This is what you call safe preaching. (laughs) You're not going out on any limb here. Safe, safe, safe. Not Not much interpretation needed. By the way, paraphrasing verses after you do the proper work in the language is a great Bible study tool. 
Because it makes you put what you've understood from those words in your own words. That's not sacrilegious. That's good Bible stuff. It doesn't, your paraphrase better not ever replace your Bible, but you should constantly be trying to say, when I'm reading this, what is being said and how can I rephrase this? Sometimes I'll just take straight from my English Bible. I'll just take that Bible, put it in front of me and get a pen and a piece of paper and write out every verse in my own words, just as a Bible study tool so that I'm just processing how am I comprehending what I'm reading? Here's a paraphrase. Listen carefully. In the same way and through the same means as you receive the gift of salvation through Christ and his work, he has purposed in himself to give you absolutely everything you need to live all your life in a godly fashion. The entirety of this sufficient provision comes from him directly to you by the knowledge he has given you. Now, you're going to have to decide what the source of that knowledge is. That's what he's, he's going to answer in the next verse, Precious Promises of Scripture. But if you stop right there, you're going to be challenged with, where do I get my information? What is my source? Is it my own head? Is it my own intuition? Is it some mystical connection that I think I have with God and I kind of trust his word, but I kind of trust that instinct and that voice to be equal with that? You're going to have to make those decisions. But Peter is saying it's a definite article, taste, epikinosis. It's the knowledge. The knowledge. Where is that coming from? What is the source of that for you? Have you... Have you kind of stripped away every other source for wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says what? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. What is the source of that acknowledgement? What is the source of that wisdom? Man's wisdom works man's means. God's wisdom never, never, ever is in concert with man's wisdom. They're, they're mutually exclusive. They, don't, they come from two different worlds, two different places, two different objectives, two different focuses, two different objectives. You name it, when you mix what you think naturally with what God thinks supernaturally, you ruin it all. I think I said this when I preached this message the first time. You know, It was. It was in the conclusion. The Word of God is like a well. You either have a well you draw from, and that's what you trust, where that pure, clean, crispy, fresh water comes from. And there's another well of the world. Jesus would say, drink from one or the other. Don't drink from, the worst thing you can do is to drink from both wells, because here's what you do. You mix them up. Then both are ruined. Both are ruined. What's your source? In the same, here's a safe interpretation of 2 Peter 1, verse 3a. In the same manner in which God was able to regenerate the believing Jew and join him to the body of Christ and grant him faith to believe in the person and word of Christ toward forgiveness and justification, he supplies an all-sufficient for all things power to that same believer through knowledge. Now remember, he's already said that salvation came by grace through faith. So now you remember the Haas? You can pull up the Haas, allows you to pull up the provision of grace and faith so that your grace and faith now attaches to this new provision and empowers it in the same way it empowered your salvation. You can't just read the Bible naturally and get anything out of it. If you read the Bible naturally, you get nothing out of it. You have to read the Bible with a submissive, hungry heart. When you come to the Bible with a hungry heart and a need, I don't care how complex your sin is or your decision that you have to make or the trial you're going through or the relationship that you hate that you're having to deal with. If you honestly throw out every other source and desperately come before God and open your Bible, and you say to God, I am not getting out of this chair until you help me. <laughs> Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? That's what he did. He wrestled with the Word. That's what's going on in that encounter. And what did he say? I am not letting go 
until I get what I came for. Now, if you approach the Bible, if it, did I say Joseph? It's, it, that was Jacob. All those J's run together. It's Jacob. But you get the point, right? You get the point. He was not going to let go until he got what he came for. If you come to the Bible, I mean, every, there's a, however many of us in, in this room. Can you imagine, even in this room, the diversity of challenges and problems and sins and temptations that we face in our individual lives, even in your own home? What you're going through is completely different than the people you live with. You take that, and you take it to the Bible with a desperate, hungry, submissive heart. You're going to get fellowship with God and light in terms of where you ought to walk, how you ought to think, how you ought to act, how you ought to be. That's the whole premise behind making wise biblical decisions is you throw out everything, your own understanding, man's wisdom, bad counsel that you've gotten. Everything, you throw that out and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does God's word say about this? Whatever that is for you, just listen carefully. This is an important application. Whatever that is for you, subject-wise, sin-wise, decision-wise, relationship-wise, circumstance-wise, you should be an expert in that subject from the Bible. You should know where every verse is. You should memorize some of them. You should write them out. You should extract the principles from those verses that apply to your relationship. What does God, what, how does God say I'm supposed to think about this big deal virus? How does God say I'm supposed to think about uh, all of the cultural upheaval that's going on? What does God's word say I'm supposed to be thinking about? <laughs> well, regardless of what I think about the virus, I think it's great that it scares people to death. I just wish they'd think about the hell that's waiting on them when they die. That's what nobody talks about. Oh, this, this, this virus is going to kill us all. Good. Get ready. <laughs> good. That's a good. Use that. Don't say the virus. I'm sure you all have. This virus is nothing. This is no big deal. This is being made of big what you do. Be a little bit more creative. Use it. You're right, man. We're all going to die. Are you ready? Are you ready to, to face God in your heart and your soul? Take these circumstances and your sins and your challenges. You become an expert in every circumstance. Matter of fact, I think that's a providential indication of what you're supposed to be learning from the Bible. You're supposed to be living through the Bible, tracking with the teaching of the church. All of that's true. But I think providentially, when God allows certain things to come into your life, that's about as mystical as I'm going to get. When God allows this challenge, this trial, this relationship, this sin to come to your life, that is providence letting you know you need to learn something about that from the scriptures. You just need to go dive in until you get your answer. People are, people get impatient. Because the Bible's not like McDonald's. You don't just pull up, order, and pull away. you got to sit down. Mary, right? Remember, we've talked about this a thousand times. She's just sitting there until, until she gets it. And the Lord says, that's the way it's supposed to work. But we want other stuff. We want it quicker. We want to circumvent the labor. You know, I, I'm a swimmer. I know you might not be able to look at me and tell. But I, I swim almost every day of my life. Usually half an hour, half a mile or so in the water. I'm, I'm getting old. I can't do it like I used to do it. But it helps me stay reasonably fit. When I get in that water... I know myself well enough to know I'm not going to limp out, go all the way, get cold and get in that water, get my goggles and my swim hat on. You wonder how I keep my hair so nice. <laughs> I'm not going to get all ready, get in that water and swim a couple of laps and get out. I realize when I get in that water, I'm going to be there for 30 minutes regardless. And that's it's like a boxing thing. It's a long time. Swimming up and down in a pool for 30 minutes. Try it tomorrow and let me know how that goes for you. It's a long time. I know I'm going to be in pain. I know I'm going to suffer a certain amount. I know I'm going to get some euphoria out of it if I push through that wall. I, I, I've done it thousands of times, so I know exactly what, what's coming. But I just prepare myself for that block of time. I'm here for this reason. It's going to be slightly uncomfortable. I'm going to suffer a little bit. 
Bible study, I mean, I, I know this may sound, it's not, but I mean, it's work. By the toil and sweat of your brow, you're going to dig it out. It has unbelievable, unfathomable reward of insight, comfort, confirmation, conviction, direction, fruit. You get all, but, but the bottom line is you got to put your hoe in the dirt and put a little sweat in it. We just don't want to do, we'll do that at work. We'll do that in our hobbies. Somebody, I mean, I, I, I'm sitting there, so these folks, and I'm saying, how could you be so devoted in that and so lazy in this? This is what's important. Anyway, I digress. God supplies an all-sufficient for all things power to the same believer through knowledge. <clears throat> you know, have you, ever, have you ever heard the analogy of scripture term? You ever heard that term? The analogy of scripture hermeneutic or the principle of... What that means is you're looking at what is the Bible... Does this fit with my theology? Now, you have to be willing when you run into a verse that doesn't fit, fit with your theology, what gives way? Not the verse, your theology is wrong. Right? But it's not... If you, You're kind of... Every time you look at a particular passage, you're, you're running that passage through the grid of information from scripture you already have. You're supposed to do that. You put precept on precept. As in every generation, here's a theological interpretation of the verse. As in every generation, God has provided mankind with a sufficient bank of information so that he might know who God is, how God thinks, and what he requires of him in every circumstance of life, so that they are what? Without excuse. That's why I titled the message, The Faithfulness of God. Even though the message is about Scripture, its <clears throat> sufficiency, its provision, behind the provision is the goodness of God. He has not left. The, pro, the, the problem is not God's provision. And God, the problem is my appropriation of the provision. You have to value it like gold. Search for it like hidden treasure. Seek for it like it's your last meal that you're not going to get nothing to eat for another 40 days. That's how you approach voraciously the Bible, because as the disciples said, where else will we go? Lord, you have the words of life. We don't appreciate the words of life that we have. I don't like I should. I'm just being straight with you. I, I live this stuff every day, and I, the more I get into it and closer to it, the more lazy or lack of sufficiency I feel in myself, if that makes any sense. I just, the closer you get, the more you want. The closer, you, more you see it, the more you want to see it. Test God. Every one of you in here have something right now in your life you're facing. By the time I come back next month, test what I'm saying. Go into the Bible to solve that problem. Put everything else aside. Go into the Word of God prayerfully and submissively. That's really important. You can't go in with, Lord, I'm going to see what I bump into here. <laughs> and, uh, like, for example, uh, is this going out over the Internet? I need to know. It is? Okay, I can't give you that illustration. It is not. You're sure? 100%. It's like 1,000%. <laughs> you better watch it. Uh, sure. Okay. You, you, you give me that. It's like, if, let's say, for example, you have children and you're afraid of this virus. And Hebrews 10 24 says, you can't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. And Ephesians 6 4 says, you have to raise your children and treat them like believers, even though you know they're not. You have to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So that means you hold them accountable for every point of obedience in Bible. And so all of a sudden, you're in a conflict because if I take my children to church, I might be willing to risk it for myself, but I'm not willing to put my child at risk and bring them into an environment where they might catch this deadly virus. That's a dilemma. That's an enigma. That's a problem. No, it's not. The problem is not well, the script. The problem is not that the scriptures don't tell you exactly what to do. The problem is you don't want to do it. You, the Bible says you're to. You, what? Well, let me just seal the deal for you. 
If a man come after me and he does not hate his father and his mother, his brother and his sister, even his own children more than he loves me, he can't be my disciple. Your faith eventually is going to cause probably, I'm not saying for sure, but it's not unusual. Everybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Your faith in Christ and devotion to him is most definitely probably going to put you at risk, and it's probably going to put the people you're responsible for at risk. Yo, the whole the church, the, for the first two or three hundred years, every time they got together, they were putting their lives on the line. Think they left their children at home? Or did they raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and take as good care and possibility and provision as they can to protect them? But their children's salvation is connected to them hearing the word, but it's also connected to their parents being obedient. You can't dim the testimony by saying it's okay for you to disobey because of this circumstance. So you see, there's a tough situation on the surface, but if you really dig in and you press the principles, are you following? Are you with me? If you really press the principles, you're going to find out that the obedience issue is not going to be unclear. It's going to be your willingness. That's what I'm saying is you got when you go study whatever this is you've got in front of you, ask God to give you a submissive heart on the front side of it. Don't go in with a if you go, listen, if you go in with a wait and see attitude about what God is going to tell you to do from his word, you're probably not going to get the right answer. Because you've already made up your mind that you've got conditions. Are you following me? God's people say amen to that. That's a Christian heart. I mean, the, the Bible is certainly presenting to us as, as a church, as his people, that following him every day is not going to be a bed of lilies and roses. We, he went to the cross. He, everybody who follows him agrees to fill up the, the cup of his sufferings. We're, we're told that this world is opposed to us and that people are not going to understand our motives, our hearts, and our actions when we do follow Christ because they can't see. So do you think that's just going to be a risk-free, comfortable? I'm just asking. I'm just asking you. Okay. All right, finish up here, and it's very simple. Uh, the most simple application of this message concerning the perfect, unconditional sufficiency of God's Word for every believer in every situation and every moment of life. The most simple application of this message is in our need to examine our willingness to work in the scriptures. Y'all should be a church that you just, when you're having conversations and stirring one another up to love and good works, Bibles are out. We're, let's, what, oh, what is, I'm, I'm just telling, we've just kind of gotten away from just having our Bibles being so comfortable with opening our Bible and not arrogant like we're supposed to know everything that's in there already. I forget stuff I read all the time. I'm constantly, I've been reading the Bible pretty consistently for 35 years, and pretty much every day I read something in the Bible I forgot. What does that tell you? It should just be, those pages should just be worn and, you know, worn out. I'm of the, uh, and this is total preference. We're going to stay here until 10 o'clock. (laughs) <laughs> Total, but this is this is true. Uh, I've done everything: audio Bible, read four chapters a day, read a chapter of the Proverbs every day, divide up the chapters, just doing some having some plan, you know. But I've gotten the older I've gotten, I've become less performance and goal oriented, and just reading. Whatever I'm going to read that day, slowly and carefully. Not just reading it to get through it, but actually turning on my mind. I mean, again, this is how I am. I almost don't want to tell you this. If (laughs) If you read a chapter, if you read a chapter and a half every day, a chapter and a half, five minutes, seven minutes, some. Chapter and a half, in two years, you read through the whole Bible. Think about it. If you spent the rest of your life, most of you in here got many, many years left. If you just read a chapter or a chapter and a half 
every day for the rest of your life, you're going to start having laps in that Bible. And it's just going to get worn out. Because you're going to, next thing you know, another year's gone by, and there you go. Another year's gone by, and I'm through it, and I'm halfway through it again. Another year's gone by, and I'm making progress. Another year goes by, I'm through it already twice. I'm just saying you, you need to approach the Bible regularly, hungrily, and submissively, and then take that other little exhortation. You've got to be a worker. With the measure you use, it will be added to you. When you when, when you put in, you reap what you sow. You just, I, I know this is like a broken record message, but I've been a Christian, as I said, for 35 years, and I've been a pastor for 25 of those 35 years. When I counsel people and disciple people, and talk to people. And I, I think I've used this illustration with you guys before, but I don't ever have anybody sitting across the table from me and their life is in a wreck and their Bibles are worn out. Their emotional problems are out of control. Their relationships are in disarray. They're in sin that they can't get out of. Yeah, Pastor, I'm, I mean, I'm wearing that Bible out. I'm, I'm hungry for truth, and I'm praying and begging daily for God to be honored in my life and to help me understand what I'm reading. I, I, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never bumped into that. Every time when we pick back through the circumstance, I hit the core of total abandonment of the one means that God gave you to be steady. It's all, always there at the bottom. So don't be that guy, right? Be that person. It's basically four things. Be that person of the word. Be that person of prayer. Be that person of repentance. And be that church person, that person who is devoted to the body of Christ. You, like a snapping turtle, latch on to those four things, and you just decide those are the non-negotiable, most important things of my life. You are going to please God. And that's what we want, right? That's, that's what we want. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. The provision of Scripture is a suggestion to humility, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Prayer is a suggestion to humility. It is saying you don't have what you need. I'm saying to you here, I'm all polished and purple up here. I am a wreck, pardon this a total disaster in every way you could imagine. I am the most common failure, loss, loser. This is the only thing that gives anybody's life meaning. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, Blue Ridge Bible Church. I just know I'm almost about to cry just thinking about how much I pray for y'all, how much I love you, and how grateful I am for you. Because I believe in my heart that you want this. That you want this. That this is what really defines our church. Right? Amen? Amen.